Cherry Developer News, episode number 84 for Wednesday, because I'm lazy, <laughs> now because we're really busy, uh, Wednesday, April 9th, 2014. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Confino. And we're here to talk about all things we think are interesting in tech. Uh, just as we get started, if you found us for Google or whatever and you want to get uh, access to our feed, you can head over to chariotsolutions.com slash devnews. Uh, if you want to see all of our podcasts, it's slash podcasts. And there you can find all that information. We also have screencasts and blogs and um, uh, other things as well, presentations from almost 10 years of technology. So let's talk a bit. Uh, there's a big, big, big issue out there, or I suppose it is big uh, in, in a vulnerability, but apparently it's been around for a long time. It's called the heart bleed bug. Joel, take it away. Yeah, this is, uh, this is about as bad as it gets from an internet security standpoint. So SSL is, of course, or SSL slash TLS is the uh, encryption that you get for, you know, when you use your browser and you connect with HTTPS. And so, you know, how obviously how most banks protect their information, how most companies protect their, their websites. So when people sign in, you know, that, that their information isn't seen and can't be seen by a man in the middle and all sorts of other things. Right. Well, the, the software that's most commonly used, or I should say very commonly used, I don't know if it's most commonly used, uh, to library for SSL is OpenSSL. Uh, used in many very uh, many Linux distributions and probably used other places. Often used with Apache and with Nginx uh, web servers. And so there was a vulnerability found in that. I guess Monday, um, or have reported Monday, that allows someone who knows about this vulnerability in the SSL heartbeat, which is why they're calling it heart bleed. Hmm. To basically read the entire memory of the web server it connects to. <laughs> so, so in it. The reason this is bad is this isn't a man-in-the-middle attack. This is you can connect directly to a web server that uses HTTPS. You can, using, by manipulating the heartbeat, you can get 60, you can read each heartbeat 64K of memory from that server, and you can just arbitrarily guess around till you get enough memory that you can have read what's in that web server's memory, which... Well, it could be anything, right? Could be yeah, cache so data, you know. Tons of things. So some of the worst things could be the um, the secret keys <laughs> for your SSL certificate. Right. So X X five and nine certificates. They have a private key and a public key. So when you've got the public key, when you've got the private key, now you can impersonate that website. You can decrypt all of its traffic. You oh, can wow. decrypt traffic that you've saved. So you may have, if you were a particularly sinister person have uh, read traffic and actually stored it, assuming that someday later, you know, like you may try to crack it offline or something like that. Um, well, you could definitely crack it once you got the private key. That wouldn't even be cracking. You would just, <laughs> decry that's called decryption at that point. <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot of, and, and it's called, theoretically, I'll take that, thank you. Yeah, yeah and, the, and you don't even have to set up a man in the middle. So there, some of the researchers, they oh, were able God. to quickly um, hack themselves and then they showed also um, stealing Yahoo Mail uh, usernames and passwords quite easily. Um, and so this the scary thing about this vulnerability is like twofold, well, threefold. One is you don't have to be man in the middle. It's very easy. You connect directly to any web server that runs, you know, uh, these versions of OpenSSL that have been compromised or that have the unintentional bug in them. And but So that's one thing, easy to, easy to exploit. Uh, the other thing is it produces absolutely no log, nothing abnormal in the log, so there's no way to detect whether you've been exploited. Oh, so zero way. And the third thing 
is that it's been around since 2011. So, oh, that's so, if anybody, so if anybody knew about this, they would have had plenty of time to, uh, to use it. So, so it's very possible. But it's also equally possible that nobody knew about it, that it just came out. I'm sure uh, you know, any sort of hackers as of like Monday are certainly trying this. But um, it's easy to fix for uh, websites that are affected, but it's, it's kind of messy to fix. You know, the fix is... First of all, patch your version of OpenSSL if you are using if you're one of this large proportion of websites that uses OpenSSL, bump up to the newer libraries. The second thing is to get new SSL certs now. Assume that your SSL certs have been compromised so right. that private keys are out there. So you need to go to your certificate authority and get a new cert. And then the third thing is um, alert your users. And this one, so that's what you absolutely have to do. And the third thing I think also is reasonable to do in most cases is to alert your users that this exploit was out there, that they should assume that their passwords have been compromised and change them. And so, uh, because if your you know, if your SSL cert at a, at a bare minimum, if your SSL cert is compromised, somebody can read the traffic. You know, now it's just like going through in clear text, and so things like passwords will be going through in clear text or they could have attacked the web server and read its memory and seen your password in there. So, oh my uh, God! So, like now, just brace yourself for like thousands of account emails saying your password needs to be changed right now. Well, that's interesting. Like I'm waiting for those and yeah. I haven't got them. Like oh you know, boy. so like um, that that makes me wonder if who's paying uh, attention. Yeah, and if um, what you know, they're not going to tell you. Like people don't just tell you, especially like. Um, financial institutions or whatever who are trying to protect your data obviously aren't going to give people a list of the libraries they use. That just <laughs> they don't want to stock exploit them. Yeah, yeah, it would just be a way to get exploited. But you wonder, you know, um, I was wondering this. So OpenSSL, I'm wondering what the other implementations of SSL are. Do some commercial companies like IBM have their own SSL? I don't know. IBM uses a lot of open source, so I wouldn't imagine. But, but maybe they do. And so potentially some of these other, you know, some companies are using other implementations of SSL that aren't effective. But Bottom line is, tons of them are, and um, probably nothing happened. You know, probably because it's so recent, you haven't been exploited yet. But you, you can't know that. I but mean, if they figure this out, what's to say a hacker didn't already know this two years ago? Or knew it in 2011. Yeah. yeah, right. Had plenty of time to to use this. So, so definitely, right. uh, yeah. It's it's not a great day for confidence <laughs> confidence in websites. Right. Has this been abused in the wild from heartbleed.com? We don't know. <laughs> yeah, because there's no way of knowing whether you're... And, right. They're talking about deploying TLS, DTLS honeypots. And a honeypot is basically putting a server out there for people to hack on with the exploit um, and kind of advertising it around uh, and seeing if people break into it. So, yike. You know, and, and this is a good segue. And so it's a big deal and it's going to be a lot of thrashing. Heartbleed.com, by the way, if you're following along. Go ahead, Joel. I was going to say, this is a good segue, and I need to find the article, but to the idea that we need better ways, even better ways of, of um, you know, sharing and encrypting data on the web. Yeah. Some of this will certainly come out. But like on Box.com, and I need to find the article, but, but I read an article where they were quoted as saying, they're working on a solution as a cloud provider where... Um, they actually allow their customers, in this case it would be businesses, to hold private keys 
that would unlock their data. So what's stored on Box.com is just basically encrypted versions of everything. So right. even if, um, for instance, a government entity said that you must give us your data, what they would give them would be useless. And so basically, so the customer is always un- in control of their data. Um, and I think, you know, there'll be- I found it, Ars Technica. Box claims, um, Box aims for NSA-resistant cloud security with customers holding the keys. I'll, I'll, I'll post this up with the show notes. Yeah, and so that that kind of, and again, I should point out, there is no weakness this was not a weakness in SSL. This was not a weakness in the protocol. It's the implementation. This is a weakness in an, in a very popular implementation. Right. Um, and kind of the other side effect of this probably will be, and this was uh, you know, just a comment from Justin, who's, uh, who's our lead developer on Hadle. He said, you know, there's going to be now reams, and they probably already are, but th- there will be reams of people who will be hired just to review code for things like this. You know, this will become like a, a major component, perhaps, of every company, but at least of certain organizations, which will be, you know, not just trusting the open source that's there. Even though I think open source is really good, because of open source, you can, you know, you can see vulnerabilities and get them patched much faster, I think, than any other way. But like, maybe there'll be more attention and scrutiny on, you know, just in-house researchers of of source code components or of open source components you know who people are kind of really kind of happy today i would think are security professionals just if you're looking for a job in, yes. in security and like you know helping to write better algorithms with encryptions you've got to be kicking yourself now saying finally you know, yeah floodgates and then not like they weren't busy already but you know certainly long term this is a growing field yeah needs yeah, to be for sure um let's see uh common html components so what yeah, is this? You know what? Let's just punt that one. That's been punted two times. Hold on. <laughs> All right. It's been done. <laughs> we move on. <laughs> it gets deleted. That's what we do, Joel. I think so. I think so. Yes. Um, um, also, I think the same might be said with Go in the Cloud, but let's skip over that for the moment. So spring cleaning, unused CSS with grunt, gulp, broccoli, or brunch. Yeah, this was cool. I had never, I have never thought of this, but, um, you know, the idea is that, when you're using libraries like Bootstrap and some of these other CSS libraries, they're general purpose and they're fairly large. And so they have all kinds of CSS, which because it wasn't custom written for your application, it's unused. You know, you're probably not using 90% of what's in there. Yeah. And so these tools will come through and trim down your CSS. And so, um, you know, you might think, well, who cares? Well, we're talking oh, about care. yeah. You care about smaller <laughs> file sizes, yeah. And so, in this case, um, you know, in this article, which is on uh, adiosmani.com, yeah, yeah, adiosmani. Adiosmani is a big JavaScript uh, researcher and expert. Okay, awesome. Well, this is a good article, and it basically using this um, unCSS, which is this one library for for removing unused CSS rules. This person saying their CSS file went from 115 kilobytes down to three kilobytes, which is fantastic. So, yeah, yeah, so it's 97% smaller from running, you know, running this tool. So it's uh, it's cool. It's almost like it's not minified, but it's the same idea. Shrink stuff down. Then you have you just have less rules that are being run in the browser. You have to assume at some point that matters. I saw this too, and, and it looks like what it does is it scans the source code, looks at all the HTML files, and finds all the CSS that's mounted. And then it goes through and it parses, you know, with Phantom JS, it kind of runs the pages through it and, you know, does that and then checks to see all the styles that are in use. I wonder if there's a way of foiling it, like, um, you know, if you programmatically change a style, what you need to do to add it back in again. 
Yes, agreed. And if you go down to the comments, which is where you find all the bad stuff in anything. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love so comments. It's, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really cool. And you can add it, again, you can add to Grunt. You can, there's, you can add it to Broccoli, uh, which is another, um, another build tool. Yeah. pipeline manager thing, which is pretty cool. Um, actually, very cool and fast. Um, but anyway, you can you can basically just make it part of your build or your pipeline or whatever that it that it strips out the unused CSS. But there are some problems, and it uses like you said, Phantom JS, which is really cool. Um, down in the comments, though, people are saying, "Well, what if there's certain things that you had to do to to turn on that CSS?" Like you said, programmatically, and so it actually could. Um, they were talking about things like hover or things since you didn't test that, you know, right. like how would it know that that style got loaded? Um, and Addy's saying that he has in the comments that he hasn't run into those edge cases, but if they do happen, there are ways you can tell at least his tool on CSS to, um, to not remove those styles, but that would be a pain in the neck because you would, you would run this tool and then how would you notice that like one style was missing that needed to be there? You know, you would have to kind of find that as a bug. It would basically introduce a bug if that happened. I wonder if the way to do it is to like make a template that you don't really use that just mounts your dynamic styles that, you know, the styles would be listed statically in that particular template. I mean, that's a hack, but yeah, yeah. You could definitely definitely do it or it has like a white list of things to never remove. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. But it would be a pain if it didn't, if if like it wasn't magical, you know, if you had to think about it too much, but, it, um, you know, but it certainly is something, something worth checking out, you know, under the minification and G zipping and, you know, all the other stuff that we do to, yeah. to, uh, to massage the output files, you know, on CSS. So I have a relevant comment to this. We just did the, uh, angular JS, uh, Philly tech week session yesterday. And I, I went from scratch with Yeoman, you know, Yeoman being a big build configuration tool for your applications, kind of like a, uh, templating system to build new projects. And, they have so many things in there that are automatic and they don't really document them well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things was we were playing around with adding in a library. And when someone added the library, they put it in the wrong block in the HTML. And when they did a build, when they just did a test and a, and a run of the server, it ripped it out. Oh. <laughs> wow. like, and it turns out it's, it's, there's something, there's a, like a Bower install. Bower is like a dependency downloader for the web. Uh, that Twitter wrote, and so Bower is part of the install scripts for you know Angular uh, templates uh, that they that they use. Uh, it's where they download Angular from, and the Bower install script looks at these little comments in the HTML, and if you put the wrong thing in the wrong place, it rips it out. I'm like, wow, that's that's more <laughs> than that opinion. That's like a yeah. <laughs> you want to get stupid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I, I like the concept of like what the things are that they're doing, but they may be overreaching a tad with a few of these tools. So, you know, especially if you're playing with something like Yeoman, uh, don't just say, hey, project team, we're going to do you use, we're going to use Yeoman all the way through the project, go, and then assume that you're going to hit all the cases, play with it, see what yeah. it does, Yeah, yeah. you know, because it could do some really uh, interesting things to your code. Oh, well, so anyway, um, uh, what do we have next? Um, ah, now, wait a second. Didn't we cover this last week? No, we didn't. Uh, Ember JS and jQuery Mobile building a mobile website. Yeah, so this is some more Ember, Ember and jQuery stuff. So Ember JS, you know, it's a great uh, MVC framework for um, you know probably the the evil twin of Angular. <laughs> um, so um, depends on you who know, you think is evil. Right, right. No, and I and I and we've been using I've been exploring Ember more and, and you know and liking it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, kind of the ne- next evolution in it is um, so Ember is not. Though is um, 
it's an MVC framework. So it's about, you know, map building your application and switching to different views and things, but it's not about the UI presentation. That's not what it does. Right. So if you want to build a mobile app using Ember.js, then, you know, you've got to think about, well, how, how am I going to make this look like a mobile app? Right. And you have, so, I'm sure a number of choices. Yeah. You could pick a lot of things. The most like sort of default obvious one that I thought of was jQuery mobile, which is a, fairly popular like mobile widgets kind of thing obviously almost everybody's heard of jQuery so um, wanted to see how well Ember and jQuery mobile would play together because you know every time you try to mix together these different frameworks you know they each they're not all completely compartmentalized like you know they have some overlap usually in some way so how do you how do you deal with that and it turns out that Ember and jQuery mobile can work together pretty friendly but um, there's a great post on mist.io that um, is is talking about how to do it. So there's a few tricks. It was like not obvious. Without this post, I would have been lost. Mm. But um, the bottom line is, you tell jQuery Ember has a really nice routing system. So mapping URLs to um, routes and loading data, it works in some ways similar to what you might think of as a server side MVC. Um, in some ways, better, but it's um, it's powerful and it's better than. In, in this author's opinion, and I think in my opinion too, it's more powerful than jQuery Mobile's uh, way of navigating mm -hmm. between views and things. Which so is like style-based, basically. Well, so it has some like way of doing transitions between views and things, but but um, but the idea is to let to let Ember use Ember's router with jQuery Mobile. So that cool. that works well. But to to do that, the first thing you do is uh, basically turn a bunch of things off in jQuery Mobile. So when you start it up, um, you're you're turning off. Uh, it's Ajax, push state, link binding, and hash listening. So basically some of the things that it does by default, you want Ember to do those things. And the nice thing about jQuery mobile is it's flexible enough that you can turn them off so that it, they won't both basically try to take over the screen at the same time. Um, then the second thing that you need to do is um, in your Ember, um, one slight modification to Ember is you need to basically repaint the page um, at certain times, and so you need to insert a uh, did insert element function, which is which happens after something's been added to the DOM, uh, to tell jQuery Mobile, which is to to actually um, redisplay the widget. So there's a slight difference in the way that the two of them work, and so there's there's a small thing that you can do in your views that will, um, and you can apply it to all your views, which will now enable them to work. So I was able to convert a re an Ember app, which didn't have any jQuery mobile. It was just using like um, handlebars templates with just straight HTML to a Ember plus jQuery mobile app with very, very little change. You know, I made this little change by creating this, this page view object, extending it um, to do this did insert element basically. Because if you don't do that, what happens is when Ember adds new uh, things to the DOM, they don't display. They're just, they're hidden. And so you sort of have to do this extra thing to like poke jQuery mobile and say, hey, show these things now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I guess the way it works normally, it, it doesn't it doesn't work the same way that Ember does. And then, um, you know, and then you tell jQuery mobile, hey, but a lot of this stuff, don't worry about, Ember's going to do it. So um, so they play nicely and this page um, from misto.io, this post is, is really nice in explaining it. And I, and I found their instructions to be right. That's really useful also for Angular and jQuery mobile as well. I mean, you have the same kind of concerns where if they're both going to try to compete for routing, you know, Angular has a router. It works pretty well, actually, in something like PhoneGap. So mm -hmm. that's just interesting information for me to play around with, too. Huh. 
Yeah, yeah. Oh. So that's curious. So actually, that's a good point. So if you if you weld Angular onto jQuery Mobile or Mobile onto Angular, whatever, do you do you do something like this? Have you done that? Um, no, I've only okay. been playing with um, Bootstrap and uh, and and, J and um, Angular right now for the kind of mobile look and feel. Mm -hmm. um, and there's another tool that I've been looking at a lot called Ionic. Mm -hmm. Ionic, I think it's like Ionic Framework, yeah, dot com, and that's a directives based tool. Um, so they already have Angular baked into the framework. Got it. Pretty okay. cool. But that's that's the one I'm looking at. That's I've got my eye on for mobile and Angular. Interesting. All right, cool. Uh, you have some more Ember in here too. Look at you, Ember Fire. And I, I will mention that there's also something called Angular Fire while we're talking about this, and I'll post that too. So this is uh, Ember and Firebase. Yeah, so the, so the interesting thing with this is that, um, and you're right, Angular Fire, uh, actually Angular, um, you know, is I think more has a larger user base or larger, so almost anything where there is something that has an Ember binding, you know, very often there's an Angular binding too. Right. But uh, Firebase is basically a JSON uh, backend uh, service that you can use to, to store state, you know, with your... Uh, application, so specifically like a mobile application or something like that, you could use Firebase. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you know I was building an Ember app. I wanted to use jQuery Mobile, and then I wanted to store things in in Firebase. Um, Ember has a nice data abstraction, which we did talk about before, sort of an object relational mapper kind of right. thing, mm -hmm. and um, called Ember Data. And so I wanted to plug that into Firebase, and it was pretty cool that um, for one thing, Firebase provided an adapter. Again, sort of like a JDBC driver, you know, a database driver or something. Everything talks Ember data, and then people for their particular service write an adapter for their service. So, and they use a particular, you know, it's already um, basically use an interface for that. And so, when you plug Ember into Firebase, for one thing, it just worked out of the box. That was cool. So, That's like, nice I, when that I went from using fixtures, so I had fixture data, which was just hard coded data. Right. I commented out one line which said use the fixture adapter, you know, put in another line which said use the Firebase adapter, and then boom, everything just worked. Oh, that's awesome. That was really slick. And the other thing that I found was really slick, which is a function of Firebase, um, but also the Ember data adapter, but but was really neat with Firebase and unexpected was that the binding basically when I put data in, that was fine. I expected it I would type, you know, data in my web app and it would go into Firebase. And then Firebase has a web interface, so you can see that. When I modified the data in Firebase, what was unexpected was it changed automatically in my app. So it was two-way. That's awesome. So, so, so two-way remote data binding. That was really cool. And then looking in there, I, I could see in the code, you know, you can see how they do it. But but that's really a function of, in the Ember adapter, you can see how, how that can be accomplished. But it's really a function that Firebase will actually alert you when things uh, change. So that totally changes you know, how you typically think of a database, which is, you know, the database is like, you call it, it doesn't call you back. <laughs> the, the, this <laughs> you is don't a database. return my calls. Yeah, right. <laughs> never returns my calls. But this just is returning tabs of data. <laughs> don't. But, yeah. And when you combine that with what, you know, Ember and Angular kind of do with their data binding, it's really powerful because now I do this data binding. So say I have whatever, a list of things on the web page, and I've bound those to, uh, you know, to something in Firebase. Then when other and this is a, like a list of you know chat messages or something. Then when other people change that, it automatically changes. Like I didn't write a line of code to have that whole kind of back and forth you know updating happen, which is amazing actually. Right. So I was pretty excited about that. That was pretty cool. Uh, not cool is um, apparently don't try to make a deal with Facebook when you started <laughs> out 
uh, as a um, what is it uh, Kickstarter project, right? Right. Poor guy, uh, John Cam Carmack, Oculus CTO, gets death threats after the Facebook deal. Now, I'm sorry. Hey, kitties out there, what the hell? Yeah, yeah I <laughs> they're mean, not listening was, to me. But um, no, that was. I mean, why? those yeah. those kind of things were obviously like way out of line. Like that kind of. But the the general thing was just that they didn't expect a backlash when Oculus sold to Facebook for for two billion dollars. So first of all, Oculus makes virtual reality so, um, hardware products. So yeah. like head, headsets, basically giant goggles that you know do virtual reality. Now the and, Rift, if I remember correctly, the Rift was the thing they put up on Kickstarter. Yes, and that got huge interest. Yes, and it, does it even exist? I think it's not even ready till this summer, right? Uh, that I don't know. I know that people were very angry, and this is, I think, a, a kind of a sideways thing, but a Kickstarter thing, which is when you know. I think the idea that people have, the kind of the romantic idea of Kickstarter, is you're helping a very a small startup, you know, <laughs> launch some product. And then they're going to stay independent and small. Yeah, and this and is they, where I say, "Ha, huh, no, they're not." Yeah, so then maybe then they this are. Is, so this is sort of the reality. This happened with a recently with a with a movie that that was done with Kickstarter, and once it became big, all the people and and basically people made some serious money off of it. Like this company was sold for two billion dollars. The people who gave their uh, funds for Kickstarter were were mad because they you know they didn't Kickstarter they didn't get equity for instance they didn't get like a piece of that two million dollars they got like you know something else and and really they were doing it mostly because they sort of a goodwill thing wasn't that that high school um kid movie uh tv show that, that used to exist and they made it a movie something like that yeah, yeah. I, for, uh, I forget Veronica, the Ma Veronica, Veronica Mars. Mars that's the one yeah. that's I saw a little bit about that so that's the other one that, that has kind of been pushed in earlier and the other um, thing is I guess people are thinking but the real thing was that people were thinking that selling to Facebook was somehow, um, you know, was a bad move for Oculus that like Facebook would somehow kill it. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, Facebook isn't exactly known for hardcore gaming. So no, not at all, but on the other hand, they have a lot of money. They are probably, my opinion is they're probably trying to diversify because sure. Facebook's, you know, not going to last forever. I mean, you can see the trends, it's obviously huge, and it's got billion, you know, worth lots of money, and, and all these other things. But it's probably at its peak, um, you know, demographically. The people who made Facebook popular, teenagers, younger people, have are moving off of Facebook in droves. It's quickly becoming old person book, and um, so I don't know. I, I think that potentially Facebook is being smart and saying, "Hey, we're going to take some of this. You know, we're going to diversify a little bit. We're going to try some other markets, just like Google's buying robots." Um, actually, this would have made a little bit more sense if it was Google because they're already buying like all kinds of crazy robots. Why, right. not, <laughs> why not add virtual reality in there? Give it sight. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I guess the, the Oculus, um, John Carmack said basically it's going to take um, – he said virtual reality is going to take off really fast in his opinion. That, that when these things become ready, which he thinks is very, very soon, that in his opinion – People are going to see them. And he said it makes really quick believers. They're going to look at this thing and go, wow, that was such an awesome experience. I want one. And so he thinks the whole market's going to take off really fast. When that happens, he said that um, all the other big companies are going to jump in and just dump a ton of money on it. So Oculus decided that they had to partner with somebody big with deep pockets. Or as soon as their technology got good, they would sort of be the ones who pioneered it. 
and then the other big guys would come in and thump them. Let me and there's certain, they would be Xerox. And, and there's certainly plenty of <laughs> time, plenty of times that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not a dumb idea. And they just said they didn't think he didn't think personally that Facebook was going to be the deep pockets. But, but as long as they all have the same long term vision, which is you know we're, we're not going to we're, we're going to try to you know develop this entire market and not use it for Farmville or something. Right. He thinks they're probably fine. It's a shame because Notch from. Uh, uh, what is it? Um, Minecraft. Minecraft. Yeah. Thank you. Not for Minecraft pulled his support for it. Um, was very upset. It's a shame because he's he's missing the point. You know, it's a little. It, well, it is a little. Yeah, it is a little weird. I guess like it's amazing how how whimsical whimsical is the wrong word. Arbitrary, maybe. I don't know. You can go from being the internet darling to the internet, you know, not darling, like, really, uh, really fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Zuckerberg created this really cool thing. You know, he was the internet darling. They IPO'd, and now somehow they're the evil empire. Well, I'm not sure. Don't forget, in the middle, they did nine or ten different privacy things that made everyone go, "What the hell are you doing to my Facebook account?" Yeah, that's so, true. I mean, I'm not actually really don't really use Facebook. Oh, you're lucky. So I don't yeah. really know much it's about it. It's a disease, and, and it is becoming an older person's disease. I know a lot of the um, grandparents in my my set are the ones who are posting mostly. Yeah. Uh, these days, and then us cranky middle agers. Um, okay, so let's talk about KitKat. Um, so you have an iPhone, right? I do. Yeah. So you had the same problem we now have in KitKat. Um, well, actually you have a worse problem because you don't have access to an SD card. So they give you these nice little SD card slots, right? In Android. And you're like, this is fantastic. I can buy a, let's say 16 gigabyte phone and put a 64 gigabyte chip in it. And I've got 72 gigabytes of storage. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened in KitKat where they tightened the policies and it was because the format of this file system is still fat. Wait, could oh. I just interject? KitKat yeah. is Android. So Android, for a while, I sorry. thought this was about candy. Listen, and I was very excited. It's almost Easter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyway, um, for those of the people who know the Cadbury egg commercials, they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so, anyway, so what's happening is Android has now um, made a restriction. Uh, applications can no longer just directly read anything on the card. Ooh. Now, the reason being that they can't secure the card because there are no file permissions. Okay, so it's a little weird. So let me let me kind of go yeah, through but this. If they just changed that, I could imagine that some developers really counted on that card being there. Well, the thing is, now the developers can then say, "I own this directory," and they can read things from it. Um, but you've got to basically register that directory. So let's see. Um, let me see if I can sum up what they did. Uh, prior to, I'm going to quote from AndroidCentral.com/slash/kitcash-sd-card-changes, which we'll have in the show notes. Um, and I'll quote from the article, which was written by Jerry Hildenbrand. Uh, it's simple, really. Prior to Android 4.4 KitKat, applications provided they have permission to access the SD card, which basically they tell you when they install, could read and write to any area on removable storage, even the system folders like DCIM, alarms, etc. That has all changed, and now third-party applications, as in ones you download from Google Play or elsewhere, can only write to files or folders they have created or taken ownership of. So now that means like you want a third-party file manager. Yeah, you have to take ownership of the files. I think is what it means. Their yeah, goal it's is kind of like it sounds like walled garden. Which it, if you want does. a walled garden, then yeah, you should just buy an iPhone. I see, exactly. I'm thinking to myself. Well, that's why I got rid of the iPhone so I get a full access to the card. So there's an issue. Um, so Jerry's awesome photo viewer app is the example he gives. It can still scan your entire system for images, build a thumbnail database of them all, and save it to a folder on the SD card. But it can't move or save the pictures themselves to folders 
including the pictures folder on the SD card because it does not own these folders. So in other words, we used to use different third-party camera apps. Um, now you can't use third-party camera apps and put them in the gallery, which is just absolutely a stupid thing. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that that doesn't just it for whatever reason it just doesn't sound like in line with their philosophy. Now like, wait, except if it's on the internal storage card because that is formatted in some Linux file system. So the real the good fix would be format the darn thing in you know X uh, whatever. Um, uh, ext3 or something like that, you know? Um, and then, of course, everybody who uses SD cards externally can't do it. But now the Play Store doesn't download to the external card, you know, so if you want to watch a movie, you've got to have enough storage to store it on your local, your, your internal storage. You know, you can look at it and say maybe the, the phone manufacturers went in on this because they wanted to sell higher storage uh, phones. But yeah, it, uh, yeah, I think that, that definitely, you're right, that definitely limits... A lot of the benefit of that now that you're describing the kind of applications kind of cool applications that are pretty you know unique like you can't do that kind of stuff on the iphone like i like the iphone but you can't do that kind of stuff because you're in the wall garden but yeah you know. right and it says you know you could just stop and think before you take an update to KitKat. now when you start doing that decision oh, and you start yeah, saying maybe i shouldn't upgrade totally. then google what'd you do you know if you're going to hold people back from adoption it's already bad enough Yes. where Android does not move as quickly in terms of adoption of new operating systems as much as iOS does. So now you've got that issue, right? Um, you know, or you can install a custom ROM, which voids your warranty, but can fix the issue. Um, it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. no, that, yeah, these yeah, are okay. great decisions, right? <laughs> or you can buy a bigger phone, uh, which stinks. So you know, what they really want you to do is they want you to use more things in the cloud. You know, Stream your videos, like with Netflix, or stream the Google Play Store instead of pinning it to your phone. You know, certainly they want to go down that road and they think, you know, well, the storage is unlimited on the cloud. Knock yourself out. But what if you want to get on a plane? You know, I had the same thing. I wanted to fly. Wanted to. Had to. I had to fly back from San Francisco uh, and I wanted to watch Lord of the Rings because it was a three-hour movie and it would kill time, right? So I downloaded and copied it and, you know, I had to clear stuff off my local internal storage card just to do so. Stupid. I had a 64-gig card on the other side. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. So, you know, weird stuff. If you want to see all the changes and the very specific stuff, it's on androidcentral.com. Um, but uh, hopefully after KitKat, they'll do an update and they'll fix this because I really do think that they they at least should give you the option to up-format your card, you know, convert the file system, and then give back your permissions. I really don't yes. see the point. Totally. I totally agree with you. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Uh, okay. The, here's the last one. I, I thought this is interesting. Do you know anything about... Um, the chips that go into your phones? Not really. Me either. And so, I mean, I've heard things like, you know, my uh, tablet has the Exynos processor from Samsung and the other one has like an ARM V6 pro. I don't know what they are. You know, I know that they're reduced instruction set chips that are lower power. Uh, and I understand ARM is a consortium. Uh, there's like a set of designers somewhere that, that design the ARM patterns and then they license the patterns for chip fab people to make. Well, if you want to know exactly what's in your phone, the state of, of where systems are, they're really all going to these system-on-a-chip uh, processes where you've got an ARM processor of some sort along with like the I.O. controller, memory controller, and things like that all in one package. Mm. And so there's a really, really good... We, we've been doing a lot of R's today, but in the R's Technica Gadgets site uh, on in March, the, the title of it is Faster, Cheaper, Smaller, The State of a System-on-a-Chip in 2014. Uh, and they go into all these things. So, for example, you know, uh, Samsung uh, makes chips, 
They only make them mostly for Samsung, but Exynos is a chip type for that. And I've never heard of a term before until I just recently ran into it. I was trying to overclock my tablet because it was slow. And, <laughs> and they, they use this term big dot little. And big is in lowercase and little is in uppercase. And so apparently there are four fast cores and four slow cores. So you get, you, they'll say, they'll sell you the phone. And like my, my Galaxy Note 3 has this Exynos thing and it's got four, eight cores. And you think you're going to use eight cores at once, but you really don't because it either uses low power cores or powers them down and goes to the high power cores when it needs to do more processing. So every th time it has to do that, it has to pause for a little bit and then switch. So you've got all this goofy stuff going on in the background because they're trying to, you know, maximize power, but also give you some bandwidth when you need it. It's really fascinating. Actually, this is a great article just to go through all the different, essentially, co-processors. But it was yeah. interesting that they were saying, like, you know, now in order to distinguish themselves, people they're going to start using cores in marketing when it makes absolutely no sense. It's like dumb. anything's a core. Like an but, IO mem memory controller is a core. No, it's yeah, not. So, they, so there's no precise <laughs> definition so that they can try to say that we have more cores than the other guy, just like the the whole, you know, clock speed. It's ridiculous, right? But, so. but this is really fascinating, though, how this works, though, um, you know, and how they're um, using, a, you know, lower memory or lower uh, power cores to do different tasks, and then it basically throttles up to the faster cores when it really needs them, but it's constantly trying to turn those off to conserve battery life. I mean, really sophisticated stuff. Right. Considering, and it's pretty neat when you look at the, this article, all the... All the different things that these phones obviously have to... I mean, they are computers, and obviously you've got a laptop or whatever, and that does a lot of stuff. But these do even more when you've got you know, GPS, and you've got the uh, 3G LTE stuff. It, it's amazing. NFC. Yeah. Like these phones these have... Sensors on your phone. Yeah. yeah, they've got... They're doing a lot all the time and under really uh, constrained power conditions. So it's pretty, pretty neat engineering. It's pretty neat to see this. Yeah, so they say, for example, that the, the upcoming Exynos 5, which is the... the the, the newest one that they're coming out with, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry, the Exynos uh, 5 Octa, maybe, I think it is. Uh, the newest versions, the newer versions, um, will use all eight or maybe six cores at once, depending which ones they embed. Um, so basically, they're going to try to run them all at the same time. So of course, it's going to drain your power, but then they're probably going to announce larger batteries, which is what's been the standard. Um, so that's one. Atom has a new, I'm sorry, Intel has a new Atom processor. Um, and so apparently it's got, you know, some better processing power in it. For example, um, what do they say in here? Bay Trail uh, is the name of the, the uh, Atom uh, code line currently. And so they're uh, looking at lower power consumption, but at the same time, they're trying to speed things up. And it looks like they're starting to upgrade all the, you know, netbook size tablets. They're really starting to give more punch. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then there are a couple of others they talk about, too. So this is like three pages. I'm not going to go through all of it. But if you're curious, they go through, you know, what all these different companies are doing, how the chips actually work. And all I can tell you is it's got to be a real headache for the Android team to certify all these different chipsets against Android every time they push a new release. Yeah, for sure. It's like the Windows problem. Apple always had to just deal with their own very constrained set of hardware, which is why I figured it always worked better. Apple machines were always so stable, and certain Windows machines would crash all the time. It's because of the diverse hardware, I think, a big part of it. You know, it's weird. Like my, actually, I'll take this back. My Galaxy Note 3, it's made by Samsung. I'm pretty sure it's got a Qualcomm uh, processor. So believe it or not, Qualcomm sells CPUs as well. 
Uh, that's where the Snapdragon term comes in. If you heard mm -hmm. Snapdragon, that's I Qualcomm have. CPUs. So, so you're actually using uh, Qualcomm chip potentially in your in your uh, computer, uh, in your handheld, uh, instead of one of Samsung's chips. If you're if you're using certain processors, and I don't know why they make these decisions. I it no is idea. weird. Like Apple, Apple's next generation iPhone. They were talking about the chips are being made. Some of the chips are being made by Samsung, but Apple and Samsung are in like massive lawsuits against each other. So, so all these businesses find ways of uh, cooperating when when it's good for both of them. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that'll do it for the dev news this week, right? I think. Uh, we're yeah, good. I mean, I think we should at least wish a fond farewell to Windows XP, which is officially expired. <laughs> Wait, twenty-one gun salute. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Good hey, riddance. <laughs> hey, it kept me from having to use Vista, so yeah, I still have some yeah, right. fond memories of XP. It was useful for eight years, and then yes. Windows Seven came out. And I'm like, all right, I'll use Windows Seven. <laughs> and then Windows came in, came out, and I said, I'll use Windows Seven. <laughs> I was yeah, talking to someone other. who was someone was talking to me about this in one of my clients, and they were saying uh, that they were talking to a number of network professionals who were doing a ton of upgrades right now to Windows Seven, not Windows Eight. Or 8.1, <laughs> but Windows 7, because it's been in the wild so long, they know what the exploits and issues are. Yes. So they are staying with Windows 7. So Windows 7 is the new XP. Like orange is the new black. <laughs> I'll get sued for that. All right. Anyway, so that's it for the dev news for um, Wednesday, April 9th, 2014. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Joel Pavano. Have a good week. <laughs>